0: Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. My guest today is William Graham Tullian Chivijan. He is the senior pastor of Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Welcome to the Beeson Podcast.
1: Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Right off the bat, your name. Give us an exegesis of your name. (laughs) Well, that might take our entire time. As you mentioned, my full name is William Graham, Tullian Chivijan. The William Graham is after my maternal grandfather, Billy Graham. Tullian is after the early church father, Tertullian. My mother was pregnant with me when she was studying Tertullian in a church history class at Montreat Anderson College. My, and uh, she prayed and asked that if prayed and asked God that if I would be a boy that I would turn out to be like Tertullian. So, lo and behold, 39 years ago, I came out a boy. Uh, and rumor has it that uh, for the first two or three days, my name was William Graham Tertullian Chivijan. Mm. Thankfully, after all of her <laughs> drugs wore off, she dropped the tur. <laughs> That's the explanation for Tullian. And then Chivijan is an Armenian last name. My father's father was Armenian. My father's mother was Swiss. My dad grew up in Switzerland, but I inherited the wonderful, laborious last name of Chivijan.
0: I've got to ask you about Tertullian. When I was a graduate student at Harvard, I took a seminar on Tertullian, and the professor had us to read everything he wrote in Latin, and I got acquainted with that church father, uh, sometimes to my painful experience. He was known as a fiery, uh, he was the first major Latin theologian of the church from North Africa, Uh, fiery, combustible, sometimes swam a little close to the edge for some people's comfort. Is that you?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Boy, that sure sounds like me. (laughs) My mom and I had a great laugh probably about five or six years ago because I found a section in a book of mine that described Tertullian exactly the way you just described him. And I read it for my mom, and she was laughing so hard she started to cry because it really did <laughs> describe me and my personality, my <laughs> passionate, somewhat fiery personality to a T. So I don't know a whole lot about Tertullian. I did have to read him in graduate school, but I think the thing that's captivated me most about him is what you described. Mm. just his. And he, was, he really was fearless. He was a Absolutely. fearless defender of the gospel. He was a real pioneer. He gets criticized some uh, for not being as careful and nuanced, but we have the benefit of you know, hundreds and hundreds of years of theologians going before us that we have been able to sort of nuance and tweak. And he was a real pioneer, so we, we give him the benefit of the doubt. I remember when I was reading him
0: all those years ago, I re- there came a point in my reading through Tertullian where it just struck me, wow. This man was a believer in Jesus Christ, yeah, it. and it comes through in yeah. his writings and in his life. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about your own coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Sure. Uh, what, what, how did you come to know Christ? What's your background?
1: Well, I grew up in a remarkable Christian home. I'm in the middle of seven children. My mom and dad had seven children. I'm right in the middle. Two older brothers and an older sister and two younger brothers and a younger sister. The flavor of Christianity that was expressed in my home growing up was warm and hospitable. It was fun. It wasn't legalistic or oppressive at all. My parents taught us from a very young age to love God and love others and memorize scripture together as a family, family devotions almost every night. I mean, I really grew up in a remarkable way. My parents did... A remarkable job of dis- of uh, discipling all of us children. Being in the middle, I wasn't exactly sure where I fit. That wasn't that big of an issue until I became a teenager. And I couldn't figure out if I was the youngest of the older three or the oldest of the younger three. And because I couldn't figure out where I fit inside the home, I set out to try and discover where I fit outside the home. And when you're young and impressionable and insecure and longing to belong Somewhere, You make some pretty unwise choices with regard to the people you hang out with and the things you do. So I was the black sheep of the family. Make a long story short, I dropped out of high school at 16 years old, got kicked out of my home at 16 years old. My parents had tried just about everything, and they finally got to the point where my lifestyle had become so disruptive to the rest of the household Mm -hmm. that they were left with really no choice but to say, if you're going to continue living this way, you can't live this way under our roof. So I left home at 16, and I was thrilled about all of this. No more teachers breathing down my neck and no more parents looking over my shoulder. I was finally free to pursue whatever I wanted to pursue and do whatever I wanted to do. Grew up in South Florida, outside Fort Lauderdale, so there's a lot to do down there if you're looking to get into trouble. And I did. And the Bible makes it pretty clear that sin is pleasurable for a season, but when that season comes to an end, you're left with a gaping hole in your soul that only God is big enough to fill. That season came to an end for me at 21 years old. During my My wilderness wanderings spiritually, I never disbelieved the gospel. I never had any intellectual issues or problems with the claims of Christ or, you know, the infallibility of the Bible. I didn't doubt anything that I had been taught growing up. For me, it was just I wanted to have fun and I didn't want any authoritative figures to get in my way. And so I drank deeply from the wells of this world and God tracked me down at 21 years old, and it wasn't a particular crisis, it wasn't a particular event, it was just this culminating sense of there's got to be more to life than what I'm experiencing, there's got to be more to who I am than what this world is telling me. And so the Hound of Heaven tracked me down and wrestled me to the ground at 21 years old, uh, raised me from death to life, and I haven't been the same since.
0: I fled him down the nights and down the days, down the labyrinthine ways, until the Hound of Heaven caught up with you. That's exactly
1: right. What a great story. It sounds a
0: little bit like the prodigal son, too. Yeah.
1: In in fact, there have been a lot of parallels. (laughs) There are a lot of parallels, sure. Um, You know, my parents were just incredibly welcoming when I finally came home, came back into the fold. Um, They just—they did a remarkable job during that season of my life. Um, They didn't preach at me. They didn't uh, wave a judgmental finger in my face. They knew that they had raised me well and that I knew what the truth was, what the answers were. So they knew that it wasn't more information that I needed that would somehow get my attention. They knew that God was going to have... To have his way with me, which he did. So they were welcoming and loving and they received me back with open arms and it was a really sweet time in the life of my family, just their prodigal coming home. My brothers and sisters, of course, were just ecstatic. They had been praying for years. My family had been praying for years, and families, friends had been praying for years. This was a this was a remarkable time in the life of my family. Um, my girlfriend at the time, who did not grow up in a Christian home, also became a Christian. We, we God saved both of us in the fall of 1993. Mm-hmm. And about four months later, we got engaged. She was living at home. I was living in an apartment down by the beach, and we got engaged. Six months later, we were married. Um, And one of the things God did when he saved me was he gave me this overwhelming hunger and thirst to study, to learn, to read, which was comical to those who knew me best because I was a high school dropout. I hated studying, hated school. And he gave me this overwhelming hunger and thirst to study, to learn, to read. And so I told my wife, Kim, I said, I'd really like to go to college, but I don't have – all I had was a GED. Mm -hmm. I didn't have any SATs, never took the SAT, didn't have the documentation I needed. But Columbia International University. University in Columbia, South Carolina, accepted me on probation, which means basically they watched me for a semester to make sure I could handle the workload. And if I could, they would let me stay. And I thrived there. I was there, I graduated in three and a half years with a degree in philosophy and absolutely loved it. It's a great school. Great yeah. school. Great experience. Uh, just went back this year to speak at chapel for the first time and loved being back on campus. It's a great place. And then I went off to Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando and loved my time there. Very fruitful time. During the seven years, the first seven years that Kim and I were married, I was in school. And during that time, our two oldest children were Born And then uh, right before I, Kim got pregnant with our third right before I graduated from seminary. So we have three children. Gabe is 16. Uh, Nathan is 14. And Jenna's nine. Wow.
0: Now, as you've described uh, your pilgrimage of faith, the word that comes to mind is grace. There's been a lot of grace in your life. And I think you would probably say that you are who you are in Christ because of God's grace. Uh, Grace is one of those words. I mean, it's a great word. Mm -hmm. I just wrote a little book called Amazing Grace, you know, God's pursuit, our response. Mm -hmm. And we all love it. Uh, and yet, it's a it's a tricky word. It's it's a word with a kind of double edgedness to it, mm-hmm. and uh, particularly because you can fall into one extreme or the other of abusing and imposing on the grace of God, presuming the grace, or uh, in downplaying it, mm-hmm. and you you become either on the one side a legalist or the other side an antinomian, somebody who sort of despises the law, sees no place for the law. Now you wrote a you wrote a I think it was a blog maybe about antinomianism, one of those big fancy words than Christian vocabulary. What is antinomianism, and what do you think about it?
1: Well, it is what you just described it to be. It is a version of Christianity, a false version of Christianity, that believes the law of God has absolutely no place in the life of the Christian, that God's commands, God's directives, the imperatives we find in the Bible are predominantly descriptive and not prescriptive, And therefore, it downplays the role of obedience and that sort of thing. So, antinomianism is a bad thing. However, the greatest preachers in history, including the Apostle Paul, Martin Luther, John Calvin, others, have been accused, Augustine, have been accused of antinomianism, understandably so, Because grace is so radical, it's so scandalous, it's so unpredictable and undomesticated that upon first hearing about it, you find people asking the same question that they asked to the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 6, verse 1. Is what you're saying then, Paul, given the radicality and hilarity of this gospel you've just given us in Romans chapter 4 and 5, is, am I hearing you correctly? Is what you're saying that we can. Go on and sin so that grace may abound. Mm. And Martin Lloyd-Jones remarked in his commentary on Romans chapter 6 that unless people are charging you with being antinomian, you're not preaching God's grace the way you ought to preach it. And of course, he wasn't endorsing antinomianism. But there is something about the radical nature of God's grace that upon first hearing will cause some people to say, now, wait a minute. Don't take this too far. There's a lot of yes, grace, but posturing Mm -hmm. inside the church today, Mm -hmm. which I think is really probably the biggest problem inside the church, at least in America today. So antinomianism obviously is a bad thing. Paul, interestingly, goes on in answering that anticipated question in Romans chapter 6 and says, by no means – You've misheard me if that's what you think I'm saying, but then you would expect him at that point to add some law as a way to balance the grace he's just given. It was a perfect opportunity for him to put the brakes on grace and say, now let me add a footnote to what I just told you in Romans chapter 4 and 5 and say, you know, you, we, need, we need some rules and regulations and law to make sure you don't take this, you know, to the extreme. But he doesn't do that. What he does beginning in verse 3 and on through the rest of chapter 6 is he goes deeper into grace. Mm. He actually, he doesn't put the brakes on, he floors it. And he basically, and this is, I think, so important for preachers to understand, grace is not the enemy of obedience. In fact, the post that I made on antinomianism essentially made this point that if we are giving short shrift, to the imperatives that we find in the Bible, it's not because we're reveling too much in the indicatives of the gospel. It's because we're not reveling enough Mm. in the indicatives of the gospel. In other words, someone whose heart has been radically gripped by God's amazing grace. I've never met anybody who grasps God's grace or who has been grasped by God's grace, who revels in it, who glories in the triumphant indicatives of the gospel, who then concludes, I don't care about obeying God. And so one of the things that I say is imperatives minus indicatives equal impossibilities. And I think what we find in the church today is a real fear of grace. That if we preach it too much, if we talk about it too much, everything's going to fall apart. People are going to go off the deep end. And I have found just the opposite, that when you really press grace down deep, and you lift high the finished work of Christ so that you realize that Christian people live under a banner which reads, it is finished, it's a done deal, that Jesus paid it all, that grips hearts in a way that, quite frankly, according to the Apostle Paul, the law can't. I mean, the law shows us what godliness looks like but it does not have the power to make one godly. The law shows us what a sanctified life looks like, but it has no power to sanctify. The gospel is God's power, not only for our justification, but for our sanctification as well.
0: Let me twist the prism a little bit and ask you to comment on another you might say, tension or paradox in the Christian life related to grace. My friend and mentor Jim Packer wrote a book way back in the 1950s called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. That book
1: changed my life. Well, it's a powerful (laughs) book still today. Absolutely.
0: Of course, you know, he's dealing there with this question of how can God be sovereign, election, all the Bible says about God's uh, call, effectual call. And yet at the same time, we are called to share the gospel with everybody everywhere, uninhibitedly, promiscuously. How do you wrestle with that paradox that seems to trouble so many people today?
1: Yeah, it really does. I really wrestled with the doctrines of grace and the doctrine of election, unconditional election in particular, my first year of school, my first year of college. I heard a professor waxing eloquent about these rich doctrines, and I had never heard this before. Grew up in Bible-believing churches, grew up in great evangelical churches, uh, but had never heard about Calvinism, Arminianism, um, the doctrines of grace, the doctrine of election. And so when I first heard this, I thought it was the most abhorrent thing I'd ever heard in my life. And so I set out to prove that this professor was wrong. My wife laughs about it today because she can remember me getting up out of bed. You know, I was 22 years old at the time getting up out of bed night after night, writing, handwriting, papers against unconditional election, limited atonement, all those sorts of things. And it was in the process of trying to disprove it that God wrecked me afresh. Dr. Packer also makes this great, that's a phenomenal book, but he, he, he painted this picture for me one time where he says, our, our understanding of God is likened to a pair of old-fashioned scales. When our estimation of God goes up, our estimation of ourselves goes down, and when our estimation of ourselves goes up, our estimation of God goes down. And that's what the doctrines of grace did for me. God became infinitely larger to me than he had ever been before. He became big, I became small. He increased, I decreased. But of course, I had friends and family members who weren't Christians, and it raised the inevitable questions Well, if this is true, then what hope is there for my non-believing friends and family members? And here I am training to be a preacher. What's the purpose of preaching if God's already determined from before the foundation of the world— who is going to believe and who's not going to believe? Why pray? All of those questions that Packer answers so remarkably in that book and so winsomely. Of, of course, you know, in wrestling with that, a couple things helped. One was something else that Dr. Packer said in his book, Growing in Christ. He said, How God's absolute determination of all things fleshes itself out in and through the free choices of human beings as a mystery left up to the mind of God.
0: Mm. He uses the word antinomy. Talking antinomy, about- that's yeah. right.
1: Yep. And it was just, for me, it set me free because I realized I can, I can let the mystery exist. I don't have to figure it out. But I embrace it because the Bible teaches it. And I I think when you read the Bible carefully, what you discover is that God's ends and God's means are so intertwined and inseparable that we could honestly say, theoretically, believing in the doctrine of unconditional election, believing in the doctrine of God's sovereign predestination and his sovereignty over all things, reading scripture, I think it's fair to say, theoretically, that if every person stopped praying and preaching today if every christian stopped praying and preaching today no one else would get saved and you say well how can you say that if you believe in the doctrine of election well because of course you could you could rewind and say well if that ever happened then we could say that god ordained that everybody on this day would stop preaching and pre- okay we we get that you know but i think we have to we have to embrace the tension that exists in the bible which clearly articulates God's ends. God has determined the end from the beginning. I am saved today, not because of my free will, but because of God's free will to save me. I am saved today because God raised me from death to life. I am saved today because God chose me before the foundation of the world. And yet I can look back at a sermon that my friend O.S. Hawkins preached at First Baptist Church in Fort Lauderdale and look back at that time and say it was It was during that moment, it was he as the messenger Mm. that God used to open my eyes and to soften my heart and to draw me to himself. And so my granddad, who's preached around the world, would be the first to say that he doesn't save anybody. Mm. It's God who does the saving. He's simply a tool in God's hands. But we can say that if my granddad never preached, if you and I never preached, Um, Since preaching is the means by which God saves sinners, then no one would be saved. So I think there's a tension that exists, and I think we just let it be. Herman Bovink, in his book, The Doctrine of God, in the introduction to his book, The Doctrine of God, says the most vital element in the study of dogmatics is a radical commitment to mystery. That's good. Now, this is Bovink, whose brain is bigger than mine. Well, Bovink and
0: and Packer and Calvin, and really all biblical theologians, I think are both and theologians. They're not either or theologians. And the problem comes when we try to logically drive this to the wall with our little pea-sized human mind, and yeah. we don't appreciate the mystery and the paradox right. that is there in the fact that both God is sovereign yeah. and we are responsible and we have a commission to carry out that that's, Jesus yeah, gave right. us. Yeah. Now, we're almost out of time, uh, Tullian, but I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about Coral Ridge. You're the pastor of this very famous, well-known, all-around-the-world church where evangelism explosion kind of got going. I think we Southern Baptists stole some of that <laughs> from you back in the past, but it worked, so why not? Yeah. Tell us about Coral Ridge and your ministry there and what God is doing in that congregation right
1: now. Well, God's doing remarkable things at Coral Ridge. I'm thrilled to be there. It's an honor to be there. Coral Ridge, after Dr. D. James Kennedy passed away in 2007, I was pastoring a church that I had planted five years earlier in a nearby community, a suburb of Fort Lauderdale, and they approached me and asked if I would consider becoming the pastor. And I was humbled, I was honored, but I said no. They came to me a second time, I said, I'm humbled, I'm honored, but no thanks, knowing just how difficult this was going to be for the next guy. They came to me a third time, and that's when we talked about the possibility of merging the two churches. So a team of men from both churches along with me got together over a period of three or four months and looked at everything, did all of the due diligence that you could possibly do, and concluded at the end of that time that God was, in fact, leading us to merge the two churches. So that took place in April of 2009. I've been there for two and a half years now as the pastor of this one new church. And the first six months, as anyone can imagine, was terribly difficult. Change is hard for just about everybody. It was a culture clash. Both were Presbyterian churches, and both were theologically similar, but they were culturally, stylistically very different. And so the first six or eight months was very painful, very difficult, by far the most painful, difficult time in my life. But God saw us through that time and the people who were really opposed to the new leadership ended up leaving and starting their own church. And so we basically started fresh with a, with a uh, passionate group of people, old and young alike, Uh, in the fall of 2009. Uh, And since that time, God has been doing remarkable things. It's a thriving church. It's a remarkably joyful church. It's a church that is beginning to grasp the radical nature of God's grace in some hilarious ways. Um, And so we're, we're actually having a lot of fun. Of course, it's a lot of work. We have not only Coral Ridge, but we have Knox Theological Seminary, and we have a radio station, Grace FM, and Westminster Academy. So we have a large institution that we have to oversee, but God is doing Great things. He surrounded me with great people, and it's just a real joy to be there.
0: You know, just talking to you, one of the things I'm so thankful about you is that you're a pastor who cares about theology. Mm-hmm. That's obvious from our conversation. You read theology that shaped your approach, mm-hmm. and yet you're open to what God is doing in a fresh and new and even creative way. Uh, you want to be as another title of Doctor Packard, keep in step with the with Spirit. The spirit.
1: <laughs> That's right. <Yeah. laughs> well, what we talk about at Coral Ridge is we want to be old-fashioned in a brand new way. That's so good. we want to broker yeah. the best of the past. We don't want to we don't want to distance ourselves from really, you know, generations of Hard work that went into getting us where we are today, and we look back, of course, to the early church fathers and and the great reformers and um, and Edwards and you know all the first great awakening theologians and uh, so we want to we don't want to distance ourselves from them and yet we don't want to live in the past we want to broker the best of what God has given His church uh, into the present and Fort Lauderdale is a remarkably unique mission field uh, it has great challenges great opportunities it's not a churched area, but it it, it makes for frontline missions in an exhilarating way.
0: My guest today on the Beeson podcast has been William Graham Tullian Chivijan. He's the senior pastor of Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church in Fort Lauderdale and a fresh voice that God has raised up for the church today, faithful to the gospel, but in step with the spirit. Thank you so much, Tullian, for being
1: with us here at Beeson. Thanks for having me.
0: And now I want to invite you to a special conference that we're having here at Beeson, November 1 and 2, 2011, our Reformation Spirituality Conference. You know, a lot of people, when they think about the Reformation, they regard it as a great event in history, economically, socially, politically, at a tremendous kind of a watershed complex of events. All that's true. But in this conference, we want to get back to the spiritual core at the heart of this great renewal movement and ask the question, what can we learn today in our own spiritual formation from the Reformers who forged such important patterns of discipleship? prayer, Bible study, worship, and living out of the Christian faith. Dr. Herman Selderhoos from the Netherlands will be one of our plenary speakers, and also Dr. Carla Aperloo-Boersma who directs the project REFO 500. This is a consortium of schools and institutions that are coming together in preparation for the celebration of the 500th anniversary of Luther's posting of the 95 Theses on the Castle Church Door at Wittenberg. In addition to these scholars, we also have a number of our own wonderful Beeson faculty. Dr. Gerald Bray will be back with us, Dr. Carl Beckwith, our new Associate Dean for Academic Affairs Dr. David Hogg. It's going to be a great event of learning, of prayer, of worship together. And so we invite you to come and join us for the Reformation Spirituality Conference, November 1 and 2, right here at Beeson Divinity School. And you can register online at our website, www.beesondivinity.com. Come join us for this special event. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, Beesondivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition